0: Good morning, Door Creek. Thanks for sliding in this morning. It's good to see you all. If you're a guest, a special thanks for braving the elements. My name's Mark. One of the My name is Mark, one of the pastors here. And welcome. Glad that you're here. It's a good week. Got to speak to our middle school students here at Sprecher. Love middle school students. So one of the... Young guys came up to me last night, and they'd asked me to speak on the church, and he said, kind of with great resolve, the church is not a building. I go, dude, you were listening, way to go. (laughs) Church is not a building, it's about people. And I was just reflecting on the church, and in my note talked about why I love the church. So if you don't get my notes or other communication, (laughs) it's because we just don't have your information. The communication card can kind of connect those loose ends there, and we'd love to... uh, to send communication to you um, that would be helpful to your own growth or journey wherever you're at. This last week too was significant because our uh, stewardship board, the leadership board comprised of godly women and men here at our church voted unanimously to accept a proposal to launch our third campus on the north side of Madison And we'll be giving you a lot more details. Yeah, you can clap. That really is a good thing. That's great. So David's been here, Pastor David Smith, for these last five months. He's gathering a core. There's about 90 people that have expressed some level of interest. It's not too late to to be a part of that. Lord willing, we'll be kind of opening our doors, a soft launch at the beginning of August. And right after Labor Day weekend, we'll do our big grand opening and We'll give you more details. We're just working through the details of the lease, and hopefully we'll have some really great space just down the few stores from Boomerang's, our resale store on the north side. So we're excited about that. And uh, we're excited to be finishing up the storyline. We got this weekend's message, next week's message. Uh, Pastor Mike, Dr. Mike Bulmore's is coming in to wrap it up and do the forum. We're really looking forward to that. And... Um, you know, today we're going to cover, depending on your position of the thousand years, a thousand years or more of biblical history, and I get 35 minutes to do that, so buckle up, right? So we're in chapter 19, if you want to grab your Bible, and as you're getting there, just a reminder, chapter 5 was this second revelation of Christ. We saw beautifully depicted in chapter 1, d- different parts of Christ in chapter 2 and 3 the father in chapter 4 Jesus he's the lion of the tribe of Judah right this roaring mighty conquering one but he's also the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world the one who conquered through his death on the cross through suffering then in chapter 6 through 16 we have this cycle these seven these seven seals that are opened these seven trumpets that are blown these seven bowls that are poured out that are all not just sequentially talking about what's going to be happening as God returns to bring judgment on wicked and evil and to bring in his new heaven new earth but it's it's more of a cyclical repetitive pattern so think of it like this it's going to happen There's going to be a controversial play, and it is going to be reviewed, and we are going to have all kinds of instant replays. It's going to be the same play, and if you're watching this from someone who's never watched football before from another country, they're going to be completely confused. It's going to be the same play, but it's going to be shown from seven different camera angles, from up top, this end zone, that backfield, this sideline, that sideline, this angle, right? And it's the same play. And there's a sense where these cycles, it's the same play. It's the end of the world and God making all things new through Christ. And so we've worked through that. Chapter 18 and 17 and 18 got to the specific judgment against Babylon, who's also called the great prostitute, this one who's in league with the beast. The beast has been empowered by Satan, the dragon, to deceive the nations, to rally the nations, to oppose God, his purposes, his Christ, Jesus, and his people. And Babylon, like the city of Babel of old, is set up opposed to God, proud, defiant. It talks about demons are associated with Babylon. The beast is associated with Babylon. All these kings and rulers are associated with Babylon. Very likely in John's day, Babylon was Rome, the Roman Empire. Rome, Babylon has been destroyed in chapters 17 and 18. Judgment. And there's two responses that God gave to his church relative to God's judgment against Babylon, the world's systems opposed to God. One was in verse 5 of chapter 18. Church, come out of her. You're compromised. You're compromising. You've blended in to culture. You've taken on the values of the world, the ways of the world, the attitudes of the world. Come out of her. And then in chapter 18, verse 20, this, the injunction to the church is and rejoice that Christ has overthrown Babylon, that which has been opposed to his people, that. Which has actually destroyed and killed and murdered God's people. And so, chapter 19 then gives us the response of God's people in heaven, the martyrs who are praising God for his judgment and his judgments that are just and true. Verse 1 After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. That might be a phrase in verse 2 that we underline. It's going to be a dominant thing to think about. For true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So God is praised for his judgments, and his judgments are described with two words, true and just. Just means right, means appropriate, fair. The word true speaks of things that conform to the facts, things that are real, not imaginary. True speaks of things like pure gold that has no impurities. Our justice has impurities because we don't know everything. Because it's easy for justice to be perverted and corrupted for selfish gains. Not God's justice, not his judgments. They are true. They are pure. They are conforming to the facts of what has happened. It's real. And it's right. And when the church believes that, that God's judgments are true and just, that is encourages us and strengthens us to endure. That sounds a warning to not compromise and not think we can have our feet in two camps, the world opposed to Christ and Christ's kingdom. And it motivates us that we would live for Christ faithfully in this world, being a testimony to Him that would be used to draw other people to Him so that we would be part of God's mission of bringing more and more people before God where they see Christ as their Savior and don't meet them as their judge. And so we come to these two feasts in chapter 19. There's a wedding feast. It's one that depicts the close relationship that God desires with us, His people. It's a joyous, close relationship, often described in the Scriptures, the relationship of God and His people with words like a wedding, like words of marriage, of husband, words of adultery, of being unfaithful. Christ talks about His relationship to the church and uses the analogy of it's just like The husband and the wife, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul picks up on that. And so we read about this first feast. It's the wedding feast, and there's joy here, not for just what God is taking on and taking out, wickedness, evil, Babylon, but what he's bringing in, what he's making new, and both needs to happen. When Christ comes back as judge to make all things new, to uphold God's perfect holy justice, he's got to deal with evil. And he does. But he also brings in the new. Verse 6 talks about this wedding feast. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding. Here's why. Because the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy that bears testimony to Jesus. And so before all things can be made new, before there's this beautiful reunion of God with his people because of what Christ has done, he's got to deal with the old. And we like, can't we just have the good part? Do we have to get in all the judgment parts? So if you had a flood in your basement, and um, if you thought you took care of things only to find out that there's some, like, black crud growing on the walls, and you called in the professionals, and they said, hey, uh, that's black mold. Has anybody been sick in your house? Yeah. Like, we've had a lot of sickness. Well, we, we've, we've got to deal with this stuff, and we've got to take it out. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all the drywall down, and we're going to start over. And you go, well, dude, I, I, I finished the basement. There's a lot of sweat equity in this, and I've taken great pride in this. I don't want you to tear down what I've built. I just want you to go over it. And the guy goes, that's not how it works. You've got to get it out. Your doctor says the tests have come back. The, uh, the biopsy shows that the tumor is not benign. It's malignant. We got to cut it out. Then we're going to put you on a chemo regimen and, and we're going to give you radiation. You go, man, can't you just like make me healthier that'll be just stronger to fight that stuff? No, you, you, you got to take it out. You got to address it. God's addressing it. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be who he said he is, a God of justice and mercy. And so he deals with Babylon, and he's going to deal with Satan and the beasts and the prophet and the people who are in league with him. And we notice that the people, the bride, has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready (coughs) for for this wedding feast? How is the church ready to meet Christ? She's remained faithful amidst suffering in the pressures to conform. She's been given these garments. What are these garments? They're the fine linen. What is the fine linen? It's the righteous acts that the saints have done. And it could be confusing to go, oh, I get it. I got to, like, bring a lot of good stuff to the table. And if I'm living a good life and doing the good work, then I'm in. That's how I get to heaven. That's how I get into the wedding. It kind of reads like that, but don't confuse the issue. We don't get into heaven on the merits of our own good works. The linen is given. The garment is given. The appropriate attire to live with Christ in heaven to be in this relationship is something that God supplies. Remember chapter 6, verse 11. It says they were given white robes. And then in chapter 7, verse 14, it says their robes were white because they washed them in the blood of the Lamb. It's given, it's washed. What is it? It's both. It's a free gift that's given and it's received by faith. And that faith is in Christ alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It actually shows up by a life that is committed to loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor like ourselves, and good works flow from that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Paul's making this case very clear about grace and good works and what saves us, but what is the true marks of a person that has a spirit in them that's been made alive in Christ. So read it with me, chapter 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're saved by what? Grace. How? Through faith. And this faith and this salvation, it's not from yourself. That's not anything we can do. It's a gift. If it weren't a gift and it's something we could do, who'd get the glory? We would. But we can't boast because it's God's work. But now that we've received God's work by faith, we become a new creature. We're, We're masterpieces. That word, handiwork. We're new creations. We're masterpieces. And we've been set apart to do the good works that he's called us to do. And they're ready because they've been faithful in trusting Christ to the very end of their life. Jesus says, speaking about the end, that he who endures to the end will be saved. And so there they are. They're the invited ones. And they're blessed. They're happy. They're approved by God. The fact that they're invited to the wedding Reminds us it's all grace. Invited into the relationship with Christ. Points to. That apart from his great grace. We would never get into that wedding. Long to be in that relationship. Or ever get there. And so there's this beautiful picture. And as only symbolism could do. It says two things. You're invited. And you're invited to be a guest. But more than the guests. I want you to participate as the bride. The bride. When I do a wedding, and I talk to the wedding party. You know what I always say? I say to the guys, because they're, they're a little duller at this than the women. I say to the guys, so guys, eyes are always on the bride. We're always looking at the bride, looking at the bride. So the eyes here are on the bride, the bride whose eyes are on Christ, ready, ready we have an opportunity not just to attend it, to participate in this deep, loving, joyous relationship. That's why Jesus came to invite us to make it possible that we could do life with him today and forever in this close, intimate relationship that is like, but it's not even close, to a good marriage. We're not married in heaven, Jesus says, and we're not going to miss anything. You're married, you go, I don't like that part. However close it is in your marriage, because of Christ, sin's removed. Our relationship as husband and wife, even closer. God wants you at the wedding. He sent his son who said, come, come, come. We want to be invited to this feast because the next feast in chapter 19, that's a bad news feast. It's called the Supper of God, down in verse 17, and it speaks about this judgment. So it begins with the picture of Christ again, this one who has authority over death and Hades, this one In chapter 14, who will stand to judge the whole earth, the one and only one who can open up the seals and carry out God's judgment, chapter 5. And here we see him as this mighty warrior on his steed. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's like right out of the battle hymn of the Republic. On his robe and on his thigh, he is... This name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So he's a conqueror. His eyes are ablazing, the white robes of his purity, the blazing eyes that he sees everything as judge. He has many crowns because he is king over all the kings, chapter 1, verse 5. And yet it says, and it's a surprise. We're always looking for surprises. It says no one knows his name. We're <laughs> going, that's funny. He just gave us three names. Did you see him? Faithful and true in verse 11. What's his name in verse 13? The word of God. In 16, what's written on his thigh? King of kings and Lord of lords. What do you mean no one knows his name? To know his name is an expression of no one has authority over him greater than him. Remember when Jesus would confront the person who was uh, possessed by a demon? He would say to the demon, what is your name? Exercising authority over as he cast out the demon. No one has authority over Christ. His robe dipped and stained in blood, a reminder that Jesus is victorious through suffering, and specifically his death on the cross. Not what they were expecting. Back in that day, it was the Messiah is going to come and free us from Rome, from tyranny, from oppression, like he did God's people from Egypt. The sword of justice that he wields is nothing less than his almighty word. He's called the word of God. John describes Jesus as the word of God in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And all all things came into being through him, and without him nothing that is could have come into existence. When God said, let there be light, John is telling us in John chapter 1, Jesus is the power of God's word that brought light in this universe into existence. That word. The word that said, peace be still and the sea of Galilee and the raging storm went to glassy, like let's barefoot water ski. His word that raised Lazarus. His word that said, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And then said, rise, take up your pallet and walk. His word that healed the lepers and made the blind to see and the lame to walk. His word will judge and defeat all evil. And we have a foreshadowing picture of this in John's gospel when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with his disciples who are falling asleep, and then he gets up and he says, it's time to come. And just at that time, Judas, who betrayed him, right, comes with the priests and the temple guards, and they're looking for someone. And Jesus says, who is it that you want? They say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, I am he. Listen to what it says in John 18, verse 6. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. His word. Verse 15, that would strike down and defeat the nations who've come together for the big battle that, John, that Revelation 16, 14 through 16 has already talked about, where the demonic spirits perform miracles, and they gather the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty, sometimes called the Battle of Armageddon. And so then we have this Hitchcock kind of moment in verse 17. For the birds are called in for that second feast, the great supper. We don't want any part of this because here it is. And I saw an angel, verse 17, standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God. We've seen it. The turkey vultures circling in the air. Maybe there's one, maybe there's two, maybe there's three. Well, this is a sky full of them. And we know when the carrion's up in the sky, there's something dead on the road or in the field or about to die. And so they're gathered for battle, but this battle is over before it starts, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. So the beast goes back to chapter 13, someone that that the devil raises up to oppose God and his people. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse, Christ, and his army, his church, his people. But the beast was captured. Before it started, before a sword was drawn from its saber, right? The beast is captured. And with it, the false prophet, that second beast that chapter 13 talks about, who'd perform the signs, the miracles, on behalf of the first beast. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and, wor- and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword, judged by the sword. God's word, Christ's word. Coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorge themselves on their flesh. Utter destruction. I mean, that first feast and all the imagery, so beautiful, fills us with joy. I want to be there. The food, the love, the joy. I want to be there. And then the horror of the scene of, the complete destruction of evil. The beast, the prophet, those mentioned in chapter 13 are thrown into the lake of fire, of burning sulfur, and the others are are destroyed through the word of Christ, his perfect word of judgment. We pick up on that in verse 11 of chapter 20. (laughs) Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them, no place to run and hide. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death, spiritual death, forever separated from God. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So people are fleeing as Christ comes to the throne to judge the nations. They're fleeing. Because his blazing eyes are penetrating them, exposing them. His purity, their impurity. But there's no place to run or hide. And it doesn't matter how great they were, how much wealth they had amassed, the positions they held, the positions they had amassed. It wouldn't protect them as they stood alone before God. No one could escape. The sea, death, Hades, all released those who had died. To stand before Christ, the righteous judge. And so, if they they weren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life through faith in Christ, then there was another set of books. And it was the books that recorded the deeds of their life. They didn't have a leg, so to speak, to stand on. And they were destroyed. They experience the second death. God allowed them what He allowed them to do freely in this world, to do life without Him forever. And so the Lamb's Book of Life is kind of like the guest list of the wedding. And having ex- accepted the gracious invitation, they are spared, the text says, from the second death. They live forever. And so this leads us to the first 10 verses of chapter 20 that are the most contested, contentious, divisive, hard to understand passage of Scripture, arguably in the whole Bible, right here. So let's go to chapter 21. (laughs) I'm just. (laughs) So sadly, the teaching about. The end, which is supposed to encourage and strengthen believers, has divided us and distracted us from the mission of the church. It's very, very unfortunate. I'm proud to say that that is not something that I've run into here at Door Creek. But some of us probably have. So let me just read the first 10 verses. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hands a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, Satan means accuser, and bound him for a thousand years. All right, just check that, thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So he's bound, thrown in the abyss, but then he's released for a short time, and he has to be. I saw thrones in this vision, he's seeing, right? I saw thrones in which were seated those who'd been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Hence that scene that we just read in 11 through 15. Their judgment after 1,000 years. This is the first resurrection. The people coming resurrected those who knew and loved Christ to reign with Christ. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Same blessing about those who are invited to the wedding lamb. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him For a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released, just like it said before that he must be from his prison, from the abyss, and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, all over the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The battle was over before it began. Sounds familiar. We just talked about that in chapter 19. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beasts and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's this mention of a 1,000 years. 1,000 years is described as a millennium. It's the only place in the whole of Scriptures that we read about this 1,000 years. And there's two takes that kind of divide people's understanding. And it answers the question, when and what is going on here? There's one take that says the 1,000 years is now, there's another take that says the 1,000 years is in the future. For those who take the 1,000 years to be now, they're saying the 1,000 years is symbolic language like so much of the numbers. Remember the 144,000 in chapter 7 made up of the 12,000 from each of the tribes to saying that's just an expression numerically, symbolically of saying this is all of God's people. And they're saying this A thousand years is just symbolic of a long period of time. So, amillennialism says there is no millennial millennium. It says the millennium is now, and the thousand years is literal, not sim, but sim. It's not literal, but symbolic. It's a long time. It's describing the present age. Satan has been bound. Jesus even talked about that in his ministry, how when the disciples went out, he said, I saw the strong man bound, restrained, as you take the gospel out to the nations. The Amillennialists will say "The, the message is going out to the nations, and what we're waiting for next is for Christ to come back, resurrect the dead, judge the living and the dead, and set up the new heaven and the new earth. There's another group. It relates to our tribe, our denomination over the years, premillennialism, that says Christ is coming back before the 1,000 years. It's in the future. It could be literal 1,000 years. It could be just a long period of time represented by that number a 1,000 years. During this time, Christ will be physically present on the earth, just like the angel said in Acts chapter. One, verse 11, when all the disciples are going, whoa, dog. Jesus just like just disappeared on us. And the angel said, guys, what are you doing, man? Get to work. The one who went up like that, Jesus, he's coming back in the same way. Get ready. Get to work. Get people ready for his return. Go and make disciples. He comes back in bodily form. The church, those who believed in Christ, they they meet him in the air and they join those who are still here alive on earth in faith. And they set up this, this transition period. It's not the perfect new heaven and earth. There still is evil in the mix. But God's reign is pervasive in new ways. And at the end of that period, Satan is released. There's this big battle. And it brings up the second, re- the, the second resurrection. And it leads to the final judgment. And so there's two takes. It's now, it's not yet, and people go on, and the, the people like the not yetters, the pre-millennials, and they get into the tribulation deal. And is it pre? Does it come back before tribulation? Is it in the middle of the seven-year period? Is it the end of it? But here's what I want to say, is it's easy to get lost in the detail and miss the big picture. And let me just focus on the common ground that everybody has here that knows and loves God and is expecting Christ's return, here's what they all agree on, that Jesus did come, that he came in a bodily form, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected. After his resurrection, they believe that he ascended and that he's coming back, as he said, not as savior, but as judge. They believe that he came. They believe that he's coming back as judge to make all things new. And to do that, he's got to address the black mulch. And he's got to take out all evil and wickedness before he can bring in the new and set up the wedding feast that goes on and on forever. Chapter 21 and 22 will begin to describe the new heaven and the new earth. And we long for that day when God will be with his people. And verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death No more mourning, no more crying, no more chronic pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Write it down, John, for these words are trustworthy and true. So I was talking to a friend this week who literally said to me, I wish this book wasn't in the Bible. And I think he was saying, because I've seen Revelation be very divisive in my life. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. So whenever we get to the Bible, whatever section, and we might be scratching our head like Revelation, like, whoa, what is going on with Revelation? It's always good to go back to the construct that we have from Paul's teaching in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And he says, all Scripture is God breathed, it's inspired, literally, God breathed his breath, his powerful word. It's from him, and it's useful, it's profitable for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, and training us in righteousness so that the servant of God is adequately equipped for every good work. And so this is teaching us. It's teaching us a ton about who God is. It's teaching us a ton about how we live our life today actually matters for eternity. It's teaching us a lot about who Christ is. It's teaching us a lot about where we are. And and it would rebuke us if we find ourselves down the road really living in Babylon. And it it comes across us like a two-by-four to say, "What, what are you doing, Mark? Where's that attitude from? What are you doing here? Why are you fudging on your tax return? What was that look? Why don't you turn off the computer? The the word... The spirit using the word, it calls us short. And then it corrects us and says, here's the way back to God's path where we keep running into his good thing. Doesn't mean life isn't hard, but we keep running into his good things. It's teaching, it's rebuking, it's correcting, it's training us to live rightly before God. And so this is a good word that gives us a clear vision of God because it gives us a clear revelation of Christ, who's our only hope against evil. Evil in our hearts, evil in this world. Christ is greater than evil. One little word will fell him, Luther wrote. The battle's over before it begins. We are fighting from victory, not for victory. He's already won on the cross. Christ is our only hope that we could actually experience the better day, that we could get into the wedding, that we could be properly attired, that we could stand before God, forgiven, having his robes of righteousness on us, that we would escape his judgment. He's our only hope to stand before God, and he is our merciful judge. He hasn't come back yet out of his mercy. He keeps warning us because of his mercy. He's a good father. He says, don't, don't run in the street. Don't go chasing that. From chapter 2, God has been warning us, don't eat from the tree. You do, you're going to die. Don't worship the idols. Don't put your hope in these things. Be faithful to each other. He's been warning us and warning us, and we go, why hasn't Jesus come back? Peter says, here's why. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 9 of Second Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's merciful. And his judgment and his justice that is patiently waiting, sounding the warning, reminds us that we can never separate his loving mercy with his justice. And so believing that his justice And his judgments are true and just, strengthens us, it warns us, it motivates us. And so I'll just close with the story that Jesus told about a king that had a wedding. And it said, it's all about my kingdom and me being a king. And he said, my ministry is just like this king who had a daughter, maybe, who was getting married. Maybe he was a son. And so he got it all ready. And he got the feast all prepared. Then he said to his servants, okay, go tell everybody, it's time. Get them up. Get them up to the palace, and we're going to have a huge feast. And so the the servants went out. They invited people, and the people said, hey, man, I'm busy now. i got to attend to my field. i got business deal to work out. And the servants kept going out. Come on, come on, it's time. And, And they roughed up the servants, and some of them even killed the servants. And when the king found out that they'd killed his servants, he went after them. And destroyed them. And then he told his servants, keep going out. You go out on the cities, in the city streets and on the byways. And whether they've been good or bad, you invite them in. And they came and they enjoyed the feast. And then the king was walking around the wedding feast. And he noticed someone that didn't have the right wedding attire on. He was in his cutoffs and flip-flops. He says, man, how'd you get in here? He says, you don't belong here. The only way you come into this wedding, you got to wear my wedding clothes, not yours. You know, it's really easy for us to think we're we're in the wedding. We got the invitation. and, And the bottom line is we actually could be trusting in our own good works. I told the junior high kids this week, look, if you sleep in the garage this week, it doesn't make you a car. And just because you come to church and are here, and let me include myself, doesn't mean we'll be there. That's a gift. That was an invite that we respond to by faith. And when we trust in Christ, perfect. Life and death for us. We have His garments, His covering that allows us to stand and brings us into that new day that we can actually begin to get pieces of today. Do you have the invite? Have you put it off? Is your name in the book or is it going to be the other books? Because if your name's not in the books, then you can't stand before God on the basis of your faith in Christ. You're not in the Lamb's book because you didn't put your faith in Christ. And then the other books are opened. Oh, God, help us. That we would make ourselves ready for that day as we persevere in faith in this day. Don't chuck your faith when it's hard right now. Don't think it doesn't matter how we live our life today and play some kind of game where we go, hey, man, I'm doing this, and yeah, I'm doing a little of that too, but it's all good because I'm doing more of this. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, there are going to be people that come and say, Lord, Lord, and he goes, I don't know you. I don't have a relationship with you because I'm not into religion. You confuse religion for relationship. Don't be confused. He loves you. There's nothing that you would have done that God would say, don't invite that person. Jesus' death is big enough to make a way for all of us. Let's pray. So Father God, as we hear and respond to your word, Would you grant us faith, maybe for the first time, to believe it? Strengthen our faith to believe that your judgments are true. They're pure. They're right. They're fair. They're just. And in believing that, would we be strengthened today to stay in this race of faith, this fight of faith? Would we heed the warning that you bring us in your word and would our hearts not only long for your return, but long that those that we know and love would meet you as their savior, not as their judge, until you come or call us home. For your glory we pray, amen.